If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4, picking up where we left off last week. We'll be in verses 12 through 19 today. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, picking up where we left off last week, continuing our series going through the book of 1 Peter, which we've been in for a few months now. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. About 50 years or so after Peter wrote this letter, Pliny the Younger, governor of this area, wrote a letter to the emperor. And in that letter, he said these words, Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. The letter's longer than that. It goes into further detail about who and how he's tortured these Christian martyrs. But when Peter was writing to the church to prepare them for suffering, those things and others like them are what he had in mind. Just a mere 50 years after he wrote the letter, that's what was going on in this time, in this place. Suffering and persecution has been part of the Christian faith since the beginning. Even our roots, if you want to trace them further back to the Old Testament, you'll find more suffering and persecution in the story of the Jews than in any other people group in human history. When you read the rest of the New Testament, if your ears are listening for it, you'll hear the themes of suffering and persecution recurring over and over and over. Christians do, Christians will suffer for their faith. So in preparation for that life of suffering, Peter has included this section toward the end of his letter. And in this section, he offers four encouragements to a suffering Christian. In today's passage, we'll see those four encouragements to a suffering Christian. The first encouragement to a suffering Christian we see in today's text is to expect suffering. We should expect suffering in the Christian life. Look back at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter ended the last section we looked at last week with a prayer of praise. He said, amen. Then he starts this final section of content in his letter, reminding them of his love for them. He calls them beloved. That's how he begins this part. And from that place of love, he says something that's really difficult to hear. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't think about this as if it's something strange that's happening to you. 
your persecution, your suffering, your ostracization for the Christian faith is a normal feature of the Christian life. It's not strange. It's not weird. And he's been doing something like this throughout the entire book. He's been repeatedly saying things that sound crazy, things that sound really radical. And he's just saying them as if they're a normal part of what true Christianity tends to look like. He begins the letter. He says, to the elect exiles. That's who you are if you're a Christian. He says, you were ransomed by Christ's blood. You've been chosen by God, but you've been rejected by men. You're part of a whole new people, a whole new race, a whole new citizenship. This place is not your home any longer. So you can be subject to the emperor because you serve one who is higher than him. You can take the suffering silently as Christ did because he is now your example. He's saying, wives, you can serve husbands because your husbands serve Christ. Husbands, you can be understanding toward your wives because God has been understanding toward you. Saying slaves, even slaves, can serve their evil masters because in doing so, you actually are serving Christ. Your suffering is not about you because you were saved by the righteous suffering for the unrighteous. So surely you can endure a little suffering that someone else might be saved. But he says also that your conduct really matters in this. So you have to pursue holiness. You have to leave the former mess of your life behind. And then he says, the end of all things is at hand. So get a hold of yourself and love one another. Any one of those things I just said, which he has said repeatedly throughout his book, any one of those things in a vacuum is crazy, right? The end of all things is at hand, so control yourself? Seems like it would be the opposite. Slaves serve even evil masters? It doesn't sound like something you would expect to hear in the Bible. The whole book has been this consistent call to a Christianity that is really foreign to our daily experience. And Peter, every time he says it, he's just acting like that's what this is. That's what Christianity actually looks like. So now, toward the end of his letter, as he starts to bring everything to a close, he just shrugs. He says, guys, suffering is not strange. It's normal. It's not new. It's not weird. This is what this is. It says, you want to be a Christian? This is what it looks like, suffering and persecution for your faith. It looks like a fiery trial. It looks like insult and injury. It looks like you feeling out of place, out of step, like a stranger and a sojourner, an alien in a foreign land. He said it over and over, and he's still saying it now. He's saying, this is not weird It's weird if you think your Christianity can be anything else than this. And I've seen this idea and heard it from several champions in different sports. They say that what finally helps them make the mindset shift into winning, into working, into doing whatever it took to be the best, what finally made that shift for them was when they embraced this idea, when they said, it's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to be hard. It's not supposed to be easy. If it's easy, then you're doing it wrong. It wasn't easy for Michael Jordan. It was a grind all day, every day, because that's what it takes to be MJ. That's what it takes to be the best. The Christian life, if you're doing it right, is supposed to hurt. It's not supposed to be easy. If your life looks exactly like your neighbor's who is not a Christian, then that means you are probably the one who's doing it wrong. 
If you've never once felt weird for being the only one in the room who is trying to glorify God, then I think you're probably doing it wrong. If it has never cost you dearly to be a Christian, then it doesn't sound like you're acting in the way that Peter is telling us is normal. It doesn't sound like your Christian experience is what Peter is telling us is normal. Where, when did we get it in our heads that we shouldn't have to suffer for being Christians? When did our understanding of our faith become that no one should ever oppose us or our beliefs? That we should be able to pray wherever we want, say whatever we want, obey however we want, and that no one is ever going to have a problem with that? When did that become what we thought Christianity was? Look, in a perfectly just world, I'm right there with you. We should be able to do all those things. It shouldn't matter. We shouldn't be persecuted. But the Bible tells us over and over that we will, that we can expect it, that we shouldn't be surprised whenever it happens because that's what's going to happen. And somewhere along the way, I think we got it in our heads that it shouldn't happen that we should do everything possible to make sure it doesn't happen. I mean, have we read the Gospels? Jesus, the perfect God-man, was opposed at every step. He had people coming after him every move that he made. And he was perfect. He was so perfect that he was killed. The founder and perfecter of our faith was beaten and spit on and mocked and crucified. And somehow we think that acting like him is supposed to give us a promotion at work. It's supposed to entail us having more money, not less. It's supposed to give us a higher social status, not a lower one. That would be strange. But the fiery trial, that's not supposed to be weird. Following Christ into his sufferings is supposed to be a normal part of our Christian lives. That's actually what it means to take up your cross and follow him. Take up your life of suffering, which ends in your death. Your life, which means you die to yourself and you follow him. That's what we do as Christians. And notice here that Peter assumes that's what's going to happen. He says, don't be surprised when it comes upon you. He's saying, it's coming. It's not a question of if. It's when. It's going to happen. Avoiding this is not an option. So all you can do now is prepare for it. And when it shows up, don't be surprised. Don't act like this is strange. Don't act like this is abnormal. Expect it to happen. Halloween is one of my least favorite times of the year. (laughs) You can like it. That's fine. You can enjoy it. That's fine. I don't think you're evil for doing that. But it's just not my thing. Uh, I really don't understand people who decorate their houses for Halloween, decorate their lawns for Halloween. I will do that for Christmas, but man, it takes some work. It's a whole Saturday. I'm not doing that just for cobwebs in my yard or anything. (laughs) My wife, she spends the whole month watching scary movies, and I spend my whole month doing anything else. Uh, She does that by herself or over the phone with a friend. I do not do that. I was a scared little kid growing up. Why would I want to be a scared grown man now in my house by choice? So going to haunted houses, that was never really something that interested me. 
It was never something that I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do with my free time. I want to go pay 20 bucks to walk through this place so that people can scare me. But when you're in college and when all your friends on Friday night are doing that, guess what you are also doing? So every once in a while, I would find myself at a haunted house, having paid my money to walk through and be harassed by strangers in costumes until I just get to the other side. And then you just walk out and you're done. But as I was walking through, the one thought that kept coming back in my head the whole time was how lame the whole thing really was. Because none of this is surprising, right? It's a haunted house. They're supposed to try and scare you. You know that's what's going to happen. When you walk into a room and you see clearly that there is a door on the other side and someone pops out with a chainsaw, it's like, yeah, that's what, that's what happens in this place, in this time. None of it is surprising. It's actually really obvious. And because you know it's going to happen, you can't, you shouldn't be really all that surprised when it finally does. The people who are actually terrified walking through the haunted house where did they think they were? <laughs> That's what happens. It shouldn't be a surprise. There's going to be a clown. There's going to be a little kid in the corner. There's going to be dim lighting. So really, none of it is that scary once you recognize that. And once you realize that, you're absolutely prepared for whatever happens. That's why I think what Peter is saying here is actually an encouragement to us. I know you hear four encouragements for the suffering Christian. The first one is expect to suffer. It's like, that doesn't sound that encouraging to me. But when you know it's coming, it actually is. When you know it's coming, you can prepare for it. Don't be surprised when you come upon the fiery trial. It's coming. It's going to happen. So be ready for it. Make up your mind today to persevere through it in faith and to come out the other side. Because Peter says that it's a test. The reason it's come at all is to test you. It's to see if your faith is real. It's to see whether you will make it through to the other side or not. And once you've made it through, now you know so much more about the faith that you already had. You know it's real. You know it could stand up to suffering, stand up to the test. You know it can be a comfort in the affliction rather than the first thing that you throw off the boat whenever the waves get big. The idea of testing our faith and the persecution we endure, that's something Peter's already talked about. He said this back in chapter 1. He said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying the testing of your faith actually reveals the genuine preciousness of your faith. And that tested faith brings glory to God. That's what God is in the business of doing. He's in the business of testing his people and their faith. He's been doing that for a long time. He did it back in Zechariah 13, verse 9. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. What you need to recognize here, though, is that the suffering teaches you suffering, it teaches you something as you go through it. 
It teaches, it reveals that when you say God is your Lord, you mean it. It's not cheap. It's not easy for you to say that. You know it's true in you. When you say that you belong to him, you actually believe that you do. You've shown that you do by your perseverance through the test. I've said this quote several times because I love it so much. It's from William Tyndale, who was eventually strangled and burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. He said this, How should I know that I loved God if I never suffered for his sake? How should I know that God loved me if there were no infirmity, temptation, peril, and jeopardy whence God should deliver me? He's saying, look, if it weren't for the test, how would I know if this was real or not, in me or from God? So don't be surprised when the suffering comes. Expect suffering. Because that suffering is going to show, when you persevere through it, that you truly love God. And when he sees you through it, even if it's what ends your life and brings you into his presence, in that moment, you'll know that he loves you. So expect suffering. Expect persecution. And when that suffering arrives, Peter tells us we are to rejoice through it. That's the second encouragement to a Christian in suffering today. Rejoice in your suffering. Look back at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So don't be surprised. Rather, rejoice when it happens. You should rejoice because you're sharing the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Again, you're, you're supposed to be following Christ, so when you endure suffering as he did, then now that's just one more way that you're like him. One more way that you know that you're actually following him. But that's not really the reason why Peter gives here for rejoicing in our suffering. He says that you should rejoice now so that you can rejoice later. He's saying rejoice now that you may also rejoice then when his glory is revealed. So he's drawing a connection between your attitude toward your current suffering and your attitude toward his revelation and glory. He's saying evidently the people who are going to be glad on that day when he's revealed in glory, revealed in glory, are also capable of rejoicing in suffering today whenever they experience it. That those who are going to rejoice then are still rejoicing now, no matter what their circumstances may be. The people who will be happy on that day are capable of also being happy today, even during suffering now. So on the flip side of that, if you are not capable of enduring joyfully now, I think Peter's calling into question how joyful you're going to be on that day when Jesus returns, which Peter said last week, that's what happens next. It's the next step. This is really close to the idea that we talked about last week, that the mature Christian has a certain disposition about them that just does not change based on their circumstances. It does not shift based on what's happening around them. If you actually love people, then it doesn't matter how many sins they commit against you, you're going to cover those sins in your love for them. If you actually love God, it doesn't matter what kind of suffering you endure now, you're still marked by that love. He's saying true Christians are true Christians even when it gets tough. 
even when you might have a lot of reasons to turn away, even when everyone around you would have an excuse for you, when they would say, I get it, when they would say, if I were in his shoes, I would have turned, I would have left, I would have stopped. Even when people would excuse you for cursing God that you may die, as Job's wife told him to do. Yet true Christians continue to bless and rejoice in the Lord because their eyes are fixed on the day that their faith is going to become sight. They're so ready to rejoice on that day that they won't stop rejoicing on this day, no matter what they're going through. And they know that God's with them in the middle of their suffering. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He's saying, you may be insulted. That's part of the trial that may happen. But if you're insulted for the name of Christ, then you're blessed. Then the spirit of glory and of God is resting on you. He's saying that he is with his people in their suffering. He identifies with them as they are persecuted for his name. He doesn't leave them to their own devices. That's part of how we're able to endure the suffering and remain steadfast in our faith. When we fear our faith will fail, Christ will hold us fast. He'll not let our soul be lost because his promises will last. And this verse, I think it clues us into something important in this passage that we can't miss today in our context. This verse talks about insult in the context of suffering and fiery trials. So you see, Persecution, it's not only martyrdom. In our American context, we have a lot of Christians, and I confess I am usually one of these people, that always try to downplay the persecution that we might be experiencing in our time, in our day. People like me, we tend to say things like, you're, you're not being persecuted. You're just not. Think about the, the church that's underground in China. Every time you sleep in on Sunday or you don't come because it's raining, Think about them and realize that you actually are not persecuted. You're not being persecuted. Hear this story of a Christian who was beheaded in North Africa or Iran. While you think maybe someone gave you a funny look when you said that you went to church on Sunday and you call that persecution. People like me, we tend to say, you're not being persecuted. Remember Tyndale, that guy who I quoted just a minute ago? He was burned at the stake after being strangled because he translated the Bible into English. And you have like eight English translations on your shelf that you won't read. Therefore, the American church is not being persecuted. That's what people like me tend to say. I'm usually one of those people. But I think this verse is a helpful reminder for people like me, who I think are, have a decent point, hopefully, in most of those other things, to not go too far with that idea. There's a helpful reminder here because our persecution would have felt like freedom to a lot of Christians in church history and today around the world. That's, that's true. So I do think we need to stop being victims. I do think we need to start being bold because we have the freedom to do so. We just aren't willing to undergo any kind of ostracization for our faith. But even as I say that and think that, people like me need to know that I can be a little bit too harsh in that. That can go a little bit too far with that idea. Because Peter here includes insult. The churches he's writing to, as he's writing these things, they probably weren't yet enduring much martyrdom, though it was going to come their way. 
in this time, in this place, their fiery trial, it looked more like insult, ostracization, feeling like minorities, feeling like outsiders everywhere they went. It felt like being the weird ones in their group. And he still says that's the fiery trial. That's persecution. That's suffering. And I think we can identify with this. No, our persecution today, it is not as intense as it is in other places. It's not as intense now as it's going to be in 10 years or 10 years after that. That doesn't make it less real. We still have to learn to live in the midst of this suffering. And Peter isn't telling us to take up arms. He's not telling us to assert our rights or to fight back because that's how we win. He's saying, no, 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 don't be surprised when it happens and rejoice through it as it happens. He's saying we should look forward to the day when his glory will be revealed. And we should rejoice like we're already there now, even in the fiery trial of persecution, even in the fiery trial of insult and injury. He's saying we certainly shouldn't be ashamed of our suffering for Christ's sake. That's the third encouragement to a suffering Christian. He says, do not be ashamed of your suffering. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, before he gets to not being ashamed, he has a qualifier here, right? He says, don't be ashamed if you're suffering as a Christian. Don't be ashamed as long as your suffering isn't for doing the wrong thing. He's saying, rejoice in your suffering unless the reason that you're suffering, the reason they're mad at you is, you know, murder then maybe we're not talking about the same thing. Maybe we're not talking about Christian suffering here. Evidently, even in Peter's day, the human instinct to play the victim was so powerful that he's explicitly combating this idea. He's saying, if the suffering is because of your terrible conduct, then it just doesn't count as the suffering of Christ for Christ. It's not the same thing. And I want you to notice that he even has levels here to this. It says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Saying, look, if you killed a guy and they put you in jail, you can't then say that you're like Paul, that you're like John the Baptist. Okay, that is not Christian suffering. That's normative justice. Okay, but maybe it wasn't murder. Maybe you just stole something. Maybe it was just theft. But if those classified documents or those embezzled millions don't belong to you, then maybe persecution isn't actually what we're talking about here. Maybe what you did wasn't even illegal, right? We, we had murder, we had theft. Now we're just two evildoers, someone who just did something wrong, something they shouldn't have. Still bad, still evil, but not quite illegal. You shouldn't have said that terrible thing. But then you did, and now they're mad at you. Well, that means you stepped outside the bounds of suffering for the name of Christ. He even goes so far as to include meddler here. Okay, the meddler, they're not evil, right? They're certainly not killing anybody. They're just all up in everybody else's business all the time. The meddler is a, a busybody. Someone who always is in the middle of everyone else's drama, but then whenever you turn to them and get mad at them, they always have the excuse ready to go, but, but I didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't even say anything. I was just listening. I was an innocent bystander in the midst of all these other things that I was in the middle of this whole time. 
And he's saying, look, that may just be annoying, but if then that annoyance causes you to suffer, not Christian suffering. Not suffering for Christ, in Christ. Peter's saying if you're insulted for this kind of behavior, something as bad as murder or as just annoying as meddling, then you're not suffering as a Christian for being a Christian. And I think we need to hear that because, yes, the one who's living the Christian life will suffer as Christ did. Absolutely. You cannot live the Christian life as Christ lived it and not endure some kind of persecution. But just because you're suffering in the same way Christ did doesn't mean you're suffering as he did. Not everybody who gets crucified is the Messiah, right? Not everyone who is persecuted is persecuted because they're a Christian, right? Not everyone who dies is a martyr. So it's hard to be a Christian without suffering, but just because you're suffering doesn't mean that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. If you're not suffering, you're probably doing it wrong, but even if you are suffering, you may be suffering for the wrong reasons. So in that case, you would still be doing it wrong. But if you suffer as a Christian, if you suffer merely because you're with him, because you're acting as he did and how he's commanded you to, if you're suffering because you're being obedient and faithful, then don't be ashamed of that. Rather, he says, we should glorify God for being counted with Christ. That's what the end of verse 16 means. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Do you know this is one of the only places in Scripture where believers are called Christians? Did you know that? It's the most common designation we give to ourselves, right? We call ourselves Christians, which literally means little Christ, like Christ, one who is in the same way that Christ is. We call ourselves that all the time. That's the label for our religion that we give ourselves. But in Scripture, it's actually pretty rare for it to call us Christians. More commonly, you'll hear believers or those in the church, something like that. To be a Christian is literally to be a little Christ, to be one who lives and acts and looks like him, one who follows Christ. So it's saying, no, 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 if you suffer for being like him, for being a Christian, then that is cause for glorifying God. I mean, this is what Peter himself did when he was persecuted back in Acts 5. The apostles, they'd been preaching the gospel. They got thrown in prison. An angel came and released them. So what do they do? They went right back to preaching the gospel. And then they went right back to prison because they got caught again. They were taken before the council. And then this is what happened next. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41 says this. And when they called in the apostles, they the, the council, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, now they the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's what it looks like to listen to Peter's encouragement here. Saying, don't be surprised when the suffering comes. Rejoice through it. And don't be ashamed whenever you suffer for being like Christ. They were imprisoned for preaching. They got beaten for doing it again. And then as soon as everybody else leaves the room, what do they do? They turn to each other and go, do you hear what they said? They said we're like Jesus. They said we're Christians. They said, we're like he is. Let's go do it again. 
They're rejoicing in their suffering because their suffering identifies them with Christ because they're suffering for being like him, for obeying him. They weren't ashamed to suffer for the name. They were so glad to have the name, to be identified with Christ, that what happened because of that identification, that didn't matter anymore. Being counted with him, that's worth it. And if you have that, what difference does the rest make? They can beat you as many times as they try to. And it doesn't matter anymore. If God is for us, who could be against us? So Christian, if that label, you being like Christ, results in your suffering, then don't be ashamed of it. Because being a Christian, being like him, especially in suffering, That is worth whatever that suffering may be, whatever that suffering may look like. And whatever that suffering may look like, you can continue trusting God through it. That's the fourth and final encouragement to a Christian who is suffering in today's verses. It says, trust while suffering. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Judgment, it begins with us. It starts now in the household of God. Now when we experience suffering, when we experience persecution, when we experience God's judgment, it's to purify his church. It's to refine us like gold, silver, and a fire. To reveal the tested genuineness of our faith. It starts here, now, with us. But it's going to continue, and it's going to end with everyone eventually. All people will stand before Christ in judgment. And Peter's point in verse 17 is that, yes, this suffering, this refining fire, it's hard to endure now. But if you think it's hard for you who is refined through it, how hard do you think it is for the one who's burned up by it? If it's hard for us, God's children who he loves, how much harder will it be for those who haven't believed, those who don't obey, who are outside the love of God and the gospel? It's hard to suffer. Peter's not saying any of this naively. He's saying this after having been beaten for it. But it's certainly better to suffer now as a Christian than to suffer then forever as an unrighteous believer, unbeliever, right? He's pointing to the truth of a coming judgment. He's saying we're we're saved from that judgment and through that judgment, not by our own righteousness, not by our own perfect obedience, but by our obedience to his gospel. That's a phrase he's used a few times throughout this book. We're saved by placing our faith, hope, and trust in his gospel that Christ died for sins to bring us to God so that we might be saved, so that we might turn from our sins and be given life in him. So then when we turn from our sins and believe in that good news, that's when we're obedient to his gospel. And when you receive that gospel, you're saved from the fiery trial of fiery judgment in the final judgment. But here, verse 18, 
And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Here, Peter's referencing Proverbs 11, verse 31, which says this, If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Your, your Bible's translation might be a little bit different than what the ESV had there uh, for that verse. It, what he's saying here, really, is not that we're barely saved, as if God's grace barely had enough for us. Rather, his point is that we're saved, but it wasn't easy. If you're scarcely saved, if it took effort for you to be saved, if it took Christ dying for sins and us persevering through the refining fire of suffering for our faith, if that's how the righteous is saved, then that's a pretty rocky road to get there. But even as hard as that route is, if that's what happens to the ones who are saved, what happens to the ones who aren't saved through that, from that? If the salvation that leads to eternal and glorious life in his presence, if that salvation looks like insult and fiery trials and suffering, then yeesh. What about all the people who don't get saved from those things? Who aren't refined through the fire but are burned up in it? It's the, you should have seen the other guy of Christian perseverance. I mean, at the end of the fight, Rocky may not be able to open his eyes, but at least he won at most movies, right? There was a point to getting hit in the face that much, as long as you win. It's better to suffer now as a winner, as a Christian, than to suffer eternally later apart from Christ, even if you arrive there without any blows to your face. And in verse 19, Peter brings all of this to a head. He says, trust God in your suffering. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Like Christ on the cross in Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. That's what it looks like to entrust your soul to the God who is faithful. You're obedient to the point of death, knowing that God is worthy of your trust, that he's faithful. Suffering is real. It happens to people. It happens to Christians. It always has and it always will. We in this place and time, we can expect to see it more and more. But just as last week, our knowledge of the end being near shouldn't cause us to withdraw from our lives, to withdraw from loving one another and the people around us. The presence of suffering, that shouldn't keep us from trusting God, from doing good in the midst of our suffering. So Peter encourages us to not be surprised by the persecution we face. He's saying it's normal. It's supposed to hurt. This is part of it. This is the Christian life. It is suffering and persecution and denying yourself and taking up your cross to follow him. But when you experience that suffering, don't wallow in your suffering. Rejoice through it. If you want to rejoice when he returns, then you got to start now. Because that's where our hope is placed. In that surely coming day when he is revealed in glory. So don't be ashamed of the suffering that you endure for his name. Just be glad that they think you're enough like him to suffer like he did. And trust God the whole way. He is the faithful and sovereign creator. 
He hasn't forgotten you. He won't forsake you. So you can keep entrusting your soul to him. You can keep doing good as you wait for that day to arrive. So be encouraged. Be prepared for the suffering that you'll face. You suffer according to God's will. And that God is faithful. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to gather with your people, to to read your word, to hear it preached. Thank you for the people in this room, for their perseverance, for their faithfulness. We know there are people even here now who are suffering, who have suffered. We can think of people who aren't with us anymore who suffered. But God, let us be encouraged as we read your word. Help us to persevere through it in your glory, in your grace. Help us to not just grit our teeth, but to rejoice as we go through it. Allow us the conduct that allows us to be persecuted for being like you. Allow us the grace to be obedient to you so much that we suffer for it. Help for our conduct to not be something that causes us to endure suffering or persecution because of it, just on its face. But help for it to be that because it makes us like you. Because our conduct is so much like yours. As we approach suffering, as we experience it, see us through it in your grace. Hold us fast to you and in you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.